Hello and welcome to Ideas Matter, the podcast that takes the most important issues of our times and explores the ideas and intellectual trends that have shaped where we are today. In this podcast, we feature the lecture Family Matters, the fourth in our podcast series Culture Wars Then and Now. The lectures were recorded at the Academy Summer School, and each talk explores some of the intellectual, cultural, social and political trends that combine to shape the culture wars. For a long time, the family has been viewed as the location of all sorts of social and moral problems, and many of the key discussions in the culture wars, such as the tensions between public and private, or between sexuality and biological reproduction, have traditionally been played out within the discussion on the family. But recently, the focus seems to have shifted from traditional issues such as marriage, sexual freedom or abortion to the questions of parenting, resulting in more instrumental and less moral approaches to the discussion on family life. Tracing these developments and clarifying whether and why the family matters, our lecturer for this episode is Dr Jan McVarish, who's a visiting research fellow at the Centre for Parenting Culture Studies at the University of Kent and author of Neuroparenting, The Expert Invasion of Family Life. Right, Uh, so just to suggest to you what I might be able to do for you, <laughs> um, and to manage your expectations. So I'm not a philosopher or a political theorist or a historian. Um, I'm a sociologist, so I'm not a psychologist. So you know, you don't have to sort of start booing me now. But I am, as a sociologist, I've been researching, as Ellie said, uh, parenting culture uh, for the past 14 years down at the Centre for Parenting Culture Studies. Um, and when we developed the centre, we called our approach Parenting Culture Studies, which nobody else was using that term, uh, because we recognised that a new framework was being, uh, was required to engage with the way in which the family was now being talked about. Since the late 1990s, the term parenting has become ubiquitous in government policy concerning families. Parenting tends to be used, which seems like a necessary adjustment, uh, sorry, uh, parenting tends to be used, which seems like a sort of necessary adjustment to the convergence of roles of mothers and fathers afforded by greater gender equality. But parenting has got different connotations as well. For example, um, diff- very different to child rearing or bringing up a child uh, or to socialisation as well. And the official adoption and promotion of the term coincided with a huge amount of commercially available guidance being offered and sold to mothers and fathers to help them in the, in the pursuit of this thing called parenting. We also realised, this is just a very simple uh, Google Ngram diagram, um, which shows that from 1960 onwards, that's when the term parenting becomes a word that is used. So what we realised, as well as that, that there is something that's gone on with in, in culture uh, and in policy concerning the way the family was being approached, we also realised that for some individuals, um, the family was uh, really becoming something uh, very different for them as well. And we realised that some of the decisions that parents make most obviously whether to feed babies from a bottle or from the breast, had somehow, during the 1990s, become issues of global importance, of interest to national governments and to agencies of international governance such as the United Nations, the World Health Organization, and the OECD. 
Policies have been drawn up at all levels with the aim of persuading more mothers to embrace a new ideal, uh, that of the breastfeeding mother. And uh, this seemed rather odd to us, that these uh, international bodies should be so concerned with uh, what women uh, do with their breasts. Uh, not only that, but some individuals seem to have attached themselves very firmly to the side of breasts to such an extent that they ferociously... Sorry, these are really cheap kind of... <laughs> they're in innuendos, but you know, people who know me will know that's what I do. Um, <laughs> they'd attach themselves very firmly into the breast camp, if you like, um, uh, ferociously, and uh, attacked those who they saw as constituting the evil forces of the bottle, the formula industry, outdated cultural norms which distance us from our babies, uh, or which estrange us from nature, and the patriarchal sexualisation of women's breasts which had alienated us from breasts' proper purpose. The most fervent lactivists saw their cause not just as one of improving public health, but as political and moral Politically to combat the marketisation of infant care and to lobby for government support for breastfeeding in institutions and the workplace, and morally to strengthen maternal child bonds and make the world a less violent, happier place by awakening mothers to the potency of breastfeeding as a bridge to a happier family and a happier future. We also recognise that for many new mothers, the turning of infant feeding into a political and moral project often put them into conflict with their husbands, their partners, grandparents, other parents, and also even with their own babies. And so it seemed back at the start when we were starting to think about how we might approach understanding what was going on, that within this contemporary parenting culture, there were some rather odd issues arising around the question of identity. And what I want to be able to do, hopefully, is just to sort of throw some things out which I will engage with the kind of reading that you've been doing, where the connection is made between the culture wars and identity. I suppose um, when you think about the family, it's not really surprising that identity would be a key issue there. Uh, the family being a, set, a, place, a set of relations where the primary identity formation of the child takes place. As the historian Leonor uh, Davidoff puts it, uh, not thinking so much in psychological terms, but kind of rooting the child um, in the family as a place where a, a very fundamental sense of belonging is formed. When the child asks, who am I? He or she learns that the assignment of a first name places them within a gender group, a second name within a family and kin group. This then leads to the question, who are we and how do we relate to a wider whole? It is only possible to answer this by establishing who we are not. Identity is created through establishing difference, by demarking us and them. These are not only rational, but also emotional imperatives couched in the language of morality. What we do is right. As the person matures, these questions extend to who do I trust? What is the group that I use as my reference point for how a life should be lived? But the family is also the institution through which adults shift identity. They become mothers and fathers, not just in the biological sense, but legally and socially. And what I'm hoping to do is to explore what we mean by the culture wars, the significance of identity to them, and the centrality to them as well of the question of authority. So first of all, some observations from the world of family sociology. So you have to imagine me or Ellie uh, sitting in a room with other academics, um, usually women, um, in the world of family sociology. Um, and this is, this is just some of the things that uh, I was thinking about that tend to occur. First of all, it's impossible to describe anyone or any family as normal. The normal family is now cast as the heteronormative family, and that's an ideological imposition upon us with negative rather than positive connotations. Secondly, 
if you're in a room talking about um, uh, parent-child relationships and, and family life, sometimes someone will object to the use of the term family at all. Uh, not just the family, but family at all, as being a word that we should no longer use. Thirdly, it's pretty impossible to talk about a maternal instinct, and there's a reluctance to use the word love to describe what goes on between husbands and wives, parents and children. Fourthly, if you mention authority or discipline, some people will squirm uncomfortably or roll their eyes, and you immediately feel very self-conscious about anything else you might say that might mark you out as a conservative caricature. You have to kind of ration your dinosaur tendencies in this milieu. Uh, and fifth, when anyone mentions children, someone will say, of course, we recognise that children do have agency. And when anyone mentions child development, somebody will say, of course, we should remember that children are not human becomings, they are human beings. Secondly, some um, observations from the world of family policy. Uh, so while there's a similar concern with the, not the marginals of the people kind of doing the minority family practices, they're rather different to the kind of mar marginals who are of interest to academics. Academics are very interested in lesbian families, gay families, migrant families. Concern in policy is focused on those who've variously been described as the socially excluded, the hard to reach, troubled families or vulnerable families. The disorderly problem family located at the bottom of society and operating outside mainstream norms has of course been an object of concern for over 100 years. But during the late 1990s, the pri problem primarily became talked about as a problem not of poverty, but of poor parenting. Secondly, in the policy world, if you, when mothers are talked about in policy discourse, they tend to be talked about as being victims of addiction, domestic violence, or mental health problems. And fathers are cast as shadowy figures who require help to engage with their own families through professional support. And this isn't me caricaturing. This is actually what it's like when you do an analysis of policy documents. Thirdly, you may have noticed that culturally, parents are everywhere. Um, I read the Daily Mail, as amongst other newspapers uh, online, and you can't look at the sidebar of shame without there being a pregnant belly on display, you know, every third, um, every third image. Celebrities move from touting pop songs to displaying their bumps, then it's on to brelfies, uh, breastfeeding selfies, and their struggles with postnatal anxiety and depression. Every miscarriage, no matter how early, is a dream of parenthood shattered and shared. And that's just the women. So, you know, we've witnessed already, uh, it feels a long time ago now, male politicians trying to connect with the public by letting it be known that they are hands-on fathers who are up in the night changing nappies. Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, David Cameron, uh, Nick Clegg all made a great deal of the fact that they were new fathers and that they were engaged and somehow inexplicably awake in the night when you just knew that they weren't. LAUGHTER <laughs> um, Parenting, they say, is the hardest job in the world and the most important job in the world. The younger royals have uh, also been high-profile promoters of this view. The other week, Prince William indicated that the royal family, the most visible symbol of the family in British life, has made something of a transition when he said that he would obviously be supportive if one of his children were gay, but would worry that they would experience prejudice, presumably from us. Um, and this indicated a, a, you know, a really quite profound shift away from the old-fashioned purpose of royal reproduction, which was to reproduce the bloodline, to secure inheritance, to serve as a publicly recognised symbol which could embody biologised national unity and historical continuity. Uh, 
So if the family is an institution which forms a bridge between the individual and society, then I think we can see that there's been a transformation in the way in which this bridging is now thought to happen and in the ways in which all the parties are involved are conceptualised, parents, children, the community and the state. And today a word I keep coming across uh, when I look at uh, policy and advocacy uh, discourse is scaffolding. Scaffolding is the role of the midwife, the health, the health visitor, the children's centre staff member. In the eyes of professionals and their advocates, when a baby is born, the parent requires scaffolding to make the transition to parenthood. They must be psychologically birthed through professional support. And the marker of their successful transition is when they realise that seeking help is the marker of, of a good parent. Any parent, whether councillor, state mum, prime minister or heir apparent. This is why you have Kate and William and uh, Meghan and Harry talking about their psychological struggles with, adap with adapting to parenthood. So what we have, I would say, is a parenting culture in which the parent is reconceptualized as a human becoming with very little of the assumed competence, authority, or indeed spontaneous capacity for love, which was taken for granted in the vast majority of parents in the past. Previously, the hallmark of the 20th century good uh, parent was that they took uh, accepted responsibility for bringing up the child independently within the cultural norms of respectability. And this generally meant loving the child, providing for their material needs, developing their capacity for self-control and teaching them the rules of society. Being well brought up meant that the child had internalised the virtues of being well-mannered, self-controlled, reasonable, hard-working and educated. At the crudest level, they could fit into school and then into the world of work. But this was a rather reduced version of an earlier form of good parenting, a good parenthood, where responsibility was also assumed for the child's spiritual and moral development. With secularisation, this dimension of raising children tends to migrate into the sentimental and then the psychological, something I'll look at in a minute. So in the UK, as far as the state is concerned, families who required uh, professional support in the past were profoundly dysfunctional, families who struggled to cope with life. These were the exceptions requiring special attention. But I think you could argue today that the family in need of support has been universalised and actually turned into the normative ideal. So that's a quick a sketch of what might be happening to parents. Uh, what about children? I think up until quite recently, I might have said the kids are all right. Uh, babies have been raised in all different ways in the past and in different types of human societies with all kinds of different arrangements for their care. Uh, but this response was a sort of reactive counter to the increasingly anxious, risk-averse, officially sanctioned conformism of parenting culture, which Frank called uh, paranoid back in 2001. But I think we, uh, when I say we, I mean Ellie and myself and other people uh, working on this, uh, I think we're increasingly asking ourselves, what does this new cultural ideal of parenting mean for the child who is attributed agency and who has rights bestowed upon him, and who's apparently a human being rather than a nascent human becoming. The delicacy and vulnerability of you uh, as a child, as a unique creature, renders you individuated from the off. The parent must watch you closely, attune to your individual needs and complex feelings, reflect on their own disposition, and only then act. This is the imperative of baby-led baby family life. 
Feelings of love must be subject to constant self-scrutiny and self-intervention. It's not surprising that feelings of ambivalence and estrangement are coming to the fore as increasingly prevalent experiences of early motherhood. And it's one of these uh, paradoxes of what's going on, which is the greater attention that's paid to postnatal depression, the more postnatal depression uh, seems to be a, a manifestation uh, that's, that's of parenting culture in the experience of very, very many uh, mothers. So although culture and policy seem to be inordinately concerned with the development of a child's cognitive and emotional framework, in fact, I think there's a very crude and rigid understanding of this process today. The child is now conceptualized as determined, not just through their, uh, not just through their experiences during the earliest years of life, but during a window of opportunity or a critical period which ends with infancy. The first three years or the first 1,001 days are what's talked of in, um, in policy terms as the period during which children are particularly susceptible to uh, parental influence. And actually, the window of opportunity for their development slams shut at a very, very early stage. This is no longer the child, you know, give, you, give, give me a child until they are seven or eight. This is a child until the age of one or two. The determining factors, even those which are conceived of as genetic or otherwise biological, are mediated through the parent's behaviour. Sometimes this is physical behaviour, maternal ingestion of alcohol or drugs, but it's also very often now the mother's emotional state um, that's, uh, that's being drawn to the fore, uh, whether that's her, the fact that she's stressed or failing to bond with the child. These are the factors that are seen as being determinant of the child's long-term future. In much of the policy and advocacy literature, the focus is almost wholly on the mother. The father has all but disappeared except as a sinister figure who causes stress to the mother by committing domestic violence, or more positively is there to encourage the mother to avoid risks in pregnancy and to support her emotional bonding with the child. And so the child, the creature who is in fact in a constant state of developmental flux, is objectified as the anchor of meaning for the family. Um, towards whom the good parent must enter into a state of constant reflective becoming. This requires the mediation of expert knowledge to help the parent interpret the child's needs and official scaffolding to support the parent uh, as they go through this vulnerable state of flux. So we have a paradox by which policy and other projects which aim to bring humans closer together and to uh, unite the parent and child and strengthen family bonds has the unintended consequence of distancing them further from one another and of allowing the entry into their midst of friendly intruders. So child-centered thinking, I don't think, uh, indicates an actual increase in sensitivity towards children and their development. I'm not even sure if it means we are softer on children than we used to be. In fact, we needily depend on them as validations of our own parental journey, controlling them by getting inside their heads, or at least that's what we think we're doing, shaping their brains. And in its most extreme form, maternal love is rendered material in the structure of the infant brain, visible through a brain scan, or in this case, I think, possibly even a dissection. Um, <coughs> So there seems to have occurred a significant change and possible reversal in the meanings of child and adult from the times of the Victorian family to the family as it's being conceptualised and institutionalised today. On the left, we've got the uh, Victorian family, big one, built on gendered norms and unequal rights between uh, men and women, actively pursuing micro-collective goals and contributing to the broader collective by raising good citizens. 
The father straddles the boundary between public and private. He's gifted authority over his wife and child, children by virtue of the fact that he has contracted to be the husband, assuming responsibility for bringing this family into being in a social sense and to uh, move the children towards full independence. All children born to his wife are his, regardless of whether they are biologically his. And so the father is a, a, it's a social status. It's not a kind of biolo biologized um, uh, uh, parental status. His wife, however, has moral authority by virtue of her womanhood and her capacities as a wife and mother. She brings order to the household and provides love and care to her husband and children. They are a unit in which it's relatively difficult for the state or anyone else to intercede. The family has privileged status. The normal rules of the public sphere do not apply. And we can see this being undone today, finally, with the smacking proposals that are being done, where the special privilege which is given to parents that they can chastise physically their child when nobody else can now, um, is being undone. On the right, we have perhaps a, an unfairly unusual case, but one that's significant in its forcing the president of the family courts, Andrew McFarlane, to undertake a full review of its implications for family law. This is Freddie McConnell. Uh, he was born female but in adulthood had uh, her breast removed and took hormone medication in order to live as a man. Through fertility treatment without a partner, he conceived and gave birth to a baby, but is now seeking to have himself listed on the child's birth certificate as the father, thereby challenging the current law, which determines that regardless of the genetic origins of the baby, the person who gives birth to the baby is its mother. I'm not putting up this up here so that we can snigger at Freddie McConnell as a sort of sign of the times and we can all tut. I'm putting it up here because I think it does force us to consider what is the basis of parenthood and in what way should it map onto biology and onto the gendered identities of mother and father and what is its relationship to official validation? What is it that really matters about the family and what is it that we might want to defend? So in the rest of the lecture, I will just share some thoughts uh, about how we've gone from the family on the left to the family on the right over the past 100 years, uh, skipping lots of steps, <laughs> and no doubt making plenty of errors, and it's, I'm sure it's one-sided and probably wrong, but uh, hopefully there'll be some things thrown out that will resonate with what Frank was talking about this morning and also with the reading that you've done. Um, but what I want us to be able to do is to rise above our gut reactions, whether they come from the kind of Helena handcart uh, side of things or the anything goes perspective, um, with some illustrations of the kinds of ideas which have attacked, attacked the family, I think. So today, first of all, I would say that the, the gender-neutral term parenting has been centre stage in family policy since the late 1990s, but feminists have pointed out that the expectations of mothers and fathers are still very distinct and are heavily weighted towards the mother. But, but both mothers and fathers are often designated by terms other than mother and father. There's a flattening out in the status and conceptualization of the parent. They're often referred to as caregivers. If you've got children at school, you'll know that the letters addressed to you as a parent are often dear parents and caregivers. Uh, and then they'll talk about, their, um, uh, talk about your child or the school or tell you off or something. Uh, you might be referred to as your child's first teacher or uh, as the uterine environment, which is particularly charming, <laughs> uh, in which a, child is, uh, a baby is conceived and gestated. Or you may be talked about as constituting a home learning environment where children become school ready. 
Overall, there's an impoverished way of talking about the family, even when it's of central concern. Secondly, there's a fragmentation of the parental role. Uh, the role has been transformed into one that's broken down into discrete actions and behaviours, a set of skills and practices, which can then be evaluated by uh, external forces. But both of these developments, I would say, rely on the prior ideological disaggregation of the family as a unit. And so I just want to then try to work through um, how that might come about, what kind of ideas have to be involved in that undoing. The bourgeois family, in legal terms, was a unification of property. The woman sacrificed her right to property to her husband on marriage. The later Victorian family, particularly when it extended beyond the middle class to those without property, became more of a sexual contract. A man and a woman, through getting married, attained official and moral sanction to have sex with each other, and the wife and, their, and her children were afforded certain financial and legal protections by the husband in return. Of course, not everyone did it this way. You only have to go back into your own families to know there were plenty of people doing things otherwise. But everyone would have known what the norms were, and many people would have taken it upon themselves to judge those who defied the rules and to stigmatise the child born illegitimately. Family formation through marriage, therefore, gained you privileged, sta privileged status as a legal, cultural and moral level relative to having sex or reproducing out of wedlock, all terms that we don't no longer use, illegitimate or out of wedlock. The family was institutionalised as a fundamental stabilising component of British society in a similar way to how Edmund Burke spoke of it all the way back in uh, 1790. He talks about it as you know, the, the experience of being part of a family, to be attached to the subdivision, to love the little platoon we belong to in society is the first principle, the germ as it were, of public affections. It's the first link in the series by which we proceed towards a love to our country and to mankind. The extension of the bourgeois family to the working class was partly achieved through the concerted efforts of 19th century philanthro-activists who were the precursors of the state and who evangelised the values of responsibility and respectability, sexual restraint, abstinence, financial probity, inculcating moral values into the child and handing them over for the newly compulsory education. These so-called shock troops of bourgeois women saw their mission as one of, the, of bringing enlightened motherhood to the masses, in this way, as the family was democratised, extended to those without property, the emotional and the sentimental side came increasingly to the fore in the authority that was given to the mother and the cultural cultivation of the ideal of the home as a haven in a heartless world. The target was mothers, I think, because their aspirations for healthier children, better behaved husbands and higher status could be realised through an alliance with the new authority of science, medicine and increasingly psychological expertise. And this is a, a nice little extract from Peter Pan, which when I had young children, I really loved this and thought, wow, this is great. This is what it feels like I'm doing. Now that I've got teenagers, I just think, you know, good luck with that. <laughs> but Mrs. Darling first heard of Peter when she was tidying up her children's minds. It is the nightly custom of every good mother after her children are asleep to rummage in their minds and put things straight for next morning, repacking into their proper places the many articles that have wandered during the day. If you could keep awake, but of course you can't, you would see your own mother doing this and you would find it very interesting to watch. It's quite like tidying up drawers. You would see her on her knees, I expect, lingering humorously over some of your contents, wondering where on earth you picked this thing up, making discoveries sweet and not so sweet, pressing this to her cheek as if it were a nice kitten and hurriedly stowing that out of sight. 
When you wake in the morning, the naughtiness and evil passions with which you went to bed have been folded up small and placed at the bottom of your mind. And on the top, beautifully aired, are spread out the prettier thoughts ready for you to put on. So I think this uh, alliance between mothers and uh, expert authority, uh, particularly psychology as the 20th century goes on, uh, represented a growth in women's authority. Both of those evangelical women who attained a public role by bringing order to the private life of the working class, and for those mothers who had expert knowledge relative to their husbands. Um, but it was authority legitimated by and shared with forces outside the family, and it also went alongside the cultural cultivation of the child as open-ended and close to nature, as a symbolic bridge between past, present and future. The child increasingly gained a powerful moral authority, in particular the suffering child or the innocent child. And of course the child's authority was based on his vulnerability, which required protection sometimes from his own parents by external actors. Because the family was conceptualised in largely naturalised terms, it was somewhat inevitably understood to be threatened by social forces. Part of the drive to universalise the ordering functions of the family emanated from repeated reformations of anxiety about the family as unable to cope with modernity. Which I, I'm kind of, is a very interesting idea, that why, why would we think that the family can't cope with social change? I do think that's quite an interesting uh, thing. Um, during the 1940s, I'm leaping forward a bit. Uh, the family becomes problematized in a, in a new way. Rather than the family being unable to, to adapt to change, the family is blamed for change. Intellectuals struggling with the problems of fascism, anti-Semitism and the Holocaust arrive at the conclusion that it was social structures which render people irrational, prone to identifying and demonizing outsiders and looking to strong leaders. These social structures, they concluded, become embedded in the psyche of individuals and transmit their dysfunctionality through the process of raising children. Mum and dad don't just fuck you up, they fuck everything up. But at this stage, it's really a daddy issue. So in 1936, um, there's an essay by Max uh, Horkheimer called Authority in the Family, in which he says, the individual mechanisms which operate in shaping the authority-oriented character within the family have been the object of investigation, especially of modern depth psychology. The latter has shown how the lack of independence, the deep sense of inferiority that afflicts most men, the centering of their whole psychic life around the ideas of order and subordination, but also their cultural achievements, are all conditioned by the relations of child to parents or their substitutes, and to brothers and sisters. Interesting that it extends beyond the parents at this stage. The concepts of repression and sublimation as the outcomes of conflict with social reality have greatly advanced our understanding of the phenomenon mentioned. And it's this um, essay by uh, Horkheimer, which is taken forward in 1950 by Adorno's uh, study, The Authoritarian Personality. And what began as an attempt to understand and re-democratise re-democratised Nazi, Nazi Germany, ended up as a study of over 2,000 Americans. Um, and the problem of anti-Semitism, as it's understood through the authoritarian personality, which is a huge social survey, um, was diagnosed as being formed from the inclination to attribute pers persistent trends in the individual to something innate or basic or racial. The remedy to, the, to this tendency to see the individual as determined uh, was, lay in the conception of the personality, personality structure as being culturally specific. In other words, the tendency to racialize difference could be countered by the alternative conceptualization of the particular identities of individuals or groups as determined by their culture, giving rise to distinct personality cult, uh, structures. 
Personality structure as a concept represents the, the embedding of the past in the individual, but it's also the structure through which contemporary interactions occur, a kind of psychologized version of man makes history, but not in circumstances of his own making. According to Adorno, the way in which an infant's needs are met within the family shapes the personality and ultimately shapes ideology. Importantly, material interests for Adorno are not determinate of the individual or group behavior, but rather it is the irrational forces of group identification which make things happen. This need is exploited through propaganda of those uh, with economic power appealing to the emotions of people. In particular, the child's affective dependence on fatherly authority involving anxiety, love and hate, combined with an identification with paternal authority, a valuing of duty over happiness and guilt over the felt disjuncture between social reality and the demands of repression to the superego breed a pathology within the family. So what we can see here, I think, is that the family, and particularly the father, is no longer conceptually independent of the public or political world as they were when uh, there was a more robust distinction between public and private. Um, but it's now implicated in... Um, the public and political world. Uh, in fact, the father is the source of social and political ills. As we move through the 60s, the view that patriarchal, the patriarchal family, which by this stage is kind of gone. Um, that's the wrong one. There we go. Um, is the key evil. Uh, the idea that the authority of the father is the key evil to be un, undone gains strength. Uh, very familiar in the you know, kind of 1960s popular culture where mothers and fathers are now estranged from their young people. The world has moved so much. Young people are kind of thrusting forwards and very and in counterposition to uh, what their parents might have known. The parents have nothing to offer to the younger generation. In the 1950s, however, we also have this... Uh, sorry... Um, a pronounced concern with, with mother love and the naturalness of mother love. So... There's a search for, within biology in particular and within psychology, for a legitimation of maternal authority in the drives of the mother rather than the needs of the child. So don't, are you familiar with the Harry Harlow experiments? Very, you know, really popularised at the time uh, where it was concluded that monkeys, in order to physically thrive, needed not just food and water, they actually needed maternal love in the form of a, a slightly more cuddly frame. And actually, the, the, the monkey would choose to gravitate towards the cuddly mother figure uh, rather than the, the figure that which actually contains food and drink. So there's a sense that the emotional needs of children was biologized. And this was alongside um, uh, John Bowlby, who people know about uh, with uh, attachment theory. There's a real kind of fairly desperate sense that we need to figure out and be able to reinforce the bonds of maternal, um, the maternal love as a way of kind of reconstituting um, social bonds in the, in the world. Moving on from that to uh, this quote from Eric Fromm, which indicates what might come next as we turn to um, thinking about the mother. Uh, so as Fromm says, um, we can say that the patrocentric individual and society is characterized by a complex of traits in which the following are predominant. A strict superego, guilt feelings, docile love for paternal authority, desire and pleasure at dominating weaker people, acceptance of suffering as a punishment for one's own guilt, and a damaged capacity for happiness. 
The matricentric complex, by contrast, is characterised by a feeling of optimistic trust in mother's unconditional love, far fewer guilt feelings, a far weaker superego, and a greater capacity for pleasure and happiness. Along with these traits, there also develops the ideal of motherly compassion and love for the weak and others in need of help. So we, I don't have time to go into feminism's role in all this, but I think you can maybe see how what's the, the kind of way is set for sort of women to make certain claims about um, their role in the world. Um, but although paradoxically, the mother's distinctive authority was undermined rather than expanded by feminism. The attempt to denaturalize maternal feeling, to separate it from womanhood, often involved the cultivation of disenchantment with the romanticized Victorian mother. Um, so thinking about Betty Friedan's 1963 book, The Feminine Mystique, um, this moved from the de-romanticizing to the pathologizing of maternal love, I think. According to Friedan, educated middle-class women were being driven nuts by the constraints of suburban motherhood, manically hoovering, uh, drugged up on Valium, raising dysfunctional kids, especially homosexual mummies boys, as a result. And the image of the mother as a dupe of patriarchal and capitalist social relations was taken forwards uh, by campaigns that subsequently came about in the 70s alongside feminism. Oh, I've got this... <laughs> I'd forgotten about the don't do it die badges when before Lady Diana got. Um, so this is um, this is a quote from the Gay Liberation Front manifesto in 1971, uh, which kind of takes forward this uh, this sort of real giving motherhood a kicking. I think. Uh, were it not also for the captive wife, educated by advertising and everything she reads into believing that she needs ever more new goodies for the home, for her own beautification and for the children's well-being, our ne economic system could not function properly, depending as it does on people buying far more manufactured goods than they need. The housewife, obsessed with the ownership of as many material goods as possible, is the agent of this high level of spending. None of these goods will ever satisfy her, since there is always something better to be had, and the surplus of these pseudo-necessities goes hand in hand with the absence of genuinely necessary goods and services, such as adequate housing and schools. And this is the kind of um, view of motherhood, I think, that I was raised with very much in the 70s and 80s, which is that women... The housewife was a very silly figure who is kind of lacks all the authority that the Victorian housewife had as the master of her home and the master of her children. The, Victor the, the modern 70s, 80s housewife is this kind of figure who's just kind of duped by uh, market forces and is a kind of willing consumer and who actually you know, limits her children's uh, capacity for self-realisation. Another quote from the Gay Liberation Front Manifesto um, it goes on, gay shows the way. In some ways, we're already more advanced than straight people. We are already outside the family, and we have already, in part at least, rejected the masculine or feminine roles society has designed for us. In a society dominated by the sexist culture, it's very difficult, if not impossible, for heterosexual men and women to escape their rigid gender role structuring and the roles of oppressor and oppressed. But gay men don't need to oppress women in order for, for, to fulfill their own psychosexual needs. And gay women don't have to relate sexually to the male oppressor. So at this moment in time, the freest and most equal relationships are most likely to be between homosexuals. So what we have here is the kind of voice from the margins, a claim of the oppressed to be the vanguard against repression within the family and the oppression of individuals excluded from it. Quickly to move on to the, um, the back, subsequent backlash in the 80s, um, which is what most of us probably, I don't know, I, certainly my first thoughts on this were about um, 
that being the most typical uh, period of culture war over the family. Um, looking back now, the very explicit culture wars that many of us will remember from the 80s and 90s seem to be over the form of the family and gender roles within it, between marriage and non-marriage, marriage and divorce, between two parent families and one parent families, between families constituted of a man and a woman and families of same-sex parents, between families that were naturally produced through heterosexual reproduction and families which were produced using technology. These were, there was a particular focus on the maternal role, working motherhood and latchkey kids, children in daycare look, looked after by other women who did not love them, and predictions of what kind of children this would produce. But looking back now uh, at that period, I sort of just did a... Uh, a bit of a sort of delve into it and reminded myself of an interesting thing to kind of refresh something that was sort of a formative memory and experience, I suppose. Um, the voices of conservative conviction in the UK in particular stand out in the figure of a kind of minority of really rather peculiar individuals. There was God's cop, James Anderton, Mary Whitehouse, Victoria Gillick, David Alton, who at the time, I think some of us would have been, you know, writing, a, a propagandizing against, and very worried that this was an indication of a, you know, a kind of heavyweight Vic, uh, Victorian values backlash. Um, but actually, when you look at what was being argued, um, mainstream politicians were very reluctant to moralize. Instead, they tended to attack the financial responsibility of single mothers or feckless fathers and actually left the moralizing to these other kinds of uh, more marginal characters. The pro-family message tended to be negative and reactive in character. It is one of moral decline, reluctant mothers and absent fathers failing to fulfill their mother-father roles. The family was reduced to an economic unit that saved the state money. Uh, was instrumentalized as a tool of social order which could prevent rioting. Marriage in the form of various royal weddings became a sort of over-the-top pantomime designed to make us go gooey over traditional romance. Um, and in rather the same way that the Falklands War was a sort of, when you look back at it now, as a kind of pantomime version of an imperialistic adventure. In the longer term, it just bred further cynicism that motherhood was antithetical to the interests of women and that marriage and family life were a sort of trick to keep us all docile, either as consumers or as workers. Who could convince... By that stage, the kind of social shifts that had taken place in the position of women relative to men made it very difficult to argue convincingly in defence of the virginity testing of Lady Diana before her marriage or of her vows to obey her husband that was one of the controversies of the time was she going to include um, uh, obedience to her husband in her marriage vows she didn't um, uh, and also looking at the recent Margaret Thatcher documentary you know you do kind of think it is quite odd to try to how could you possibly defend stay-at-home motherhood at a time when we have uh, a female prime minister and it was a, there's a very very interesting interview as part of that documentary with uh, Thatcher talking about her, her her decision to go back to work very very early despite having very young twins and you can see how impossible it is for her to really kind of convincingly make a case for conservative uh, family values i'm not saying it's a personal uh, it doesn't emanate from the personal but it's kind of interesting the position that she was in um, any kind of richer sense of the father's role by this stage other than as a, as a breadwinner, which if you think about it, is a really quite an insulting characterization of what fathers do. They you know, win bread for their families. They kind of bung some food their way. It's a very diminished version of the paternal role compared to what had gone before. Or as the disciplinarian, by the 70s, this had really been undone. Um, 
and culturally by the 70s, you know, dad was out of touch. He was a male chauvinist pig, you know, a term that I used to th throw around all the time in the 70s and 80s. Uh, he would sit in front of the telly making pronouncements at which the rest of the family would roll their eyes and carry on regardless. I'm thinking of Alf Garnett, who in the, in the US was Archie Bunker, and apparently there was a version in Germany as well, which people can confirm, called Alfred Tetzlaff, um, all based on Alf Garnett. And during the uh, 1980s, attacking or defending the family becomes a focal point, I think, when traditional morality, especially sexual morality in a broader sense, is given up on. So it's really interesting when you look at the kind of disputes over um, pornography, conservatives seem to sort of pick symbolic fights with signs of permissiveness, like against pornography. But actually, in the UK especially, it very quickly gets limited to child pornography uh, and homosexuality, uh, any kind of attempt to... Um, uh, to problematise it as being associated with promiscuity or sexual practices um, becomes very limited, actually in Clause 28, to homosexuality as a pretended family relation. This is not about gays uh, having promiscuous sex. It's about gays who want to be respectable and have children. Um, so it does, I think, as a, con uh, as a consequence of this, uh, there's a convergence around the idea of the vulnerable child, uh, vulnerable to child pornography, for example. Um, and the vulnerable child becomes a moral pivot uh, who's capable of securing consensus in the absence of any other points of consensus. Hence, the paedophile becomes a huge cultural disciplinary figure, legitimating restrictions on adult and child freedom, putting a wedge between adults as risky and children as at risk. On the other hand, a homosexuality becomes freed from its association with sexual perversion and gays become respectable as adopters, foster carers, parents, and after that, husbands and wives. So to conclude, uh, where is the family at and what really matters about it? And these aren't really, they're not full conclusions, obviously. They're just um, where I... I got to at the end of the lecture. <laughs> uh, so um, I think there's still a recognition that parents need to be responsible. That hasn't gone anywhere as a presumption. And in fact, at least in officialdom, this responsibility has been expanded and extended backwards into pregnancy and preconception and extended forwards uh, into young adulthood. So you know, your period of parental responsibility is, um, is, is far longer than it ever would have been for my parents' generation, I think. As far as normal people go, the need to do good parenting has become a shared value, I think. It's a divisive one, however, since what constitutes good parenting is not agreed upon and keeps changing all the time. Criticism of the nanny state still resonates with the public because direct invasions of privacy are still experienced as an insult to our dignity as parents. And even if you accept intervention in some respects, you will reject them in other areas. The idea of a kind of total intervention in your family life, I think, is, is, would be horrifying to most people. But the friendly tr intruders or the apps on your phone, um, which, can, uh, which seek to guide you in your, uh, the task of parenting, they very rarely directly confront your authority as a parent. Rather, they sort of try to go alongside you and they seek to share your authority and to shape it, appealing to our appetites uh, to do a good job. Thirdly, I think no one thinks that the state can directly substitute for the parent. We're all aware of the abuses and lack of care in alternatives to the family. 
In fact, it's become harder to imagine strangers being motivated by a benign impulse to be involved in the care of our children. So actually, the focus continually comes back onto the family, even though there's very little faith in the family's ability to do these tasks that, um, that we, we tend to uh, still assume need to be done. So we don't see an explicit issuing of licenses to parents, nor forced sterilisation of the unfit a weaker form of liberalism uh, seems to pr still prevail, but in some ways this just demonstrates a rather paralysing lack of faith in parents, other people, and in state action. But overall, I think, uh, there is a profound discomfort with parental agency. Um, parents are required to share authority or to mediate it through expert-informed reflexive practice. Hope is placed, on the other hand, in the child's agency, but this is highly curtailed to a very small window of opportunity where they can be formed for good or ill during the first 1,001 days of life. And they're defined, uh, their agency, uh, miscalled, I think, misnamed, uh, is defined by their vulnerability. It's not actually agency, but a state of being determined and fixed by external forces. For the individual, therapeutically conceived, there is no expectation of an end point where internalised self-discipline and moral independence, the markers of individuation, are achieved. It's therefore difficult to see how such individuals can be conceived of as adequate parents themselves without the constant scaffolding by external actors to support them in their reflexivity. And so to go back to one of the points that um, Frank made this morning about what happens to these kind of um, uh, concepts and, uh, and concepts of hierarchy, I think overall I would argue that the, the distinction between adults and children is, has been substantially dissolved in the same way that the distinction between public and private has been uh, dissolved. So whereas in the past the family had independence from the state and from the market, today the parent is brought into being only through state or uh, semi-state action and the child is instrumentalised as a tool for disciplining adults as a repository for adult identity formation. Thank you. You've been listening to Dr Jan McVarish give the lecture Family Matters, the fourth in the series Culture Wars Then and Now. We'll return next week with Dr Tim Black, who will be looking at the crisis of bourgeois ideology from Nietzsche to Heidegger. So don't forget to subscribe to this Ideas Matters podcast on your favourite feed. And if you can, we'd be grateful if you could leave a review which will help us get the word out about this series. For anyone who wishes to explore any of the lecture topics in more depth, then do check out the additional readings that are listed in the accompanying notes to the podcast. Or you can visit the Academy at our website www theboi.co.uk I'm Alistair Donald, Secretary of the Battle of Ideas Charity, which organises the Academy, as well as Debating Matters Schools Debating Championships and Living Freedom, the annual residential school for under-25s. If you would like to support this podcast, or any of the educational and citizenship initiatives, then please consider making a donation to the charity. More details of our work and how to support us are available at the website www.theboi.co.uk. Finally, thanks to Will Nesta Sherman who edited this podcast series. Music